Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hi guys, I'm John Weeks from Plant-Based Face-Off, the Instagram page all about trying new plant-based food alternatives. I try, compare and rate the latest food in the vegan world and let you know which is best. I'm talking everything from burgers to cheese to chocolate. Check me out on Insta at Plant-Based Face-Off. Now though, it's time for this week's podcast. Enjoy. You're listening to The Contest and Me, a podcast from the Eurotrip. Hello everyone. If you were listening last week, you may remember at the start of the episode there was a little pause. Not this week though. I managed to finally persuade my girlfriend to record that lovely little introduction for us. Because we are here with The Contest and me, a podcast from the Euro Trip. I say we. Unfortunately, for the first time, there is no we. It is just me. James is unfortunately not very well this week. So I'm sure you'll join me in sending our best wishes to him. Please do, by the way, send him all of your best. Send him some get well soon messages. He's on Twitter. He's at Mr. James Rowe, I think, if you find him on there. Just search James Rowe. Search Eurotrip Podcast. You'll find him on there somewhere. And he'd love your messages. So, James, get well soon. But in his absence, I am going to bring you an interview he did this week for the contest and me, which is fascinating. Now, if you listened to last week, you will know that on The Contest and Me, we bring you interviews with some of the biggest Eurovision fans, some of the most well-known Eurovision fans from across the globe. And today is no different because we have an interview with the BBC's Moscow correspondent. His name, of course, is Steve Rosenberg. Now, he's lived in Moscow for decades and covered all things involving Vladimir Putin and Russia. But on top of all that, he, of course, loves the Eurovision Song Contest. So we have got some incredible stories for you, including the time he met the Russian grannies in 2012 before the contest in Baku. And don't forget as well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We are on Twitter, on Instagram. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. And you can send us an email. We are hello at EurotripPodcast.com. But plenty to get on with. So you're listening on Acast, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is the Eurotrip. So here we go then, another week, it's Wednesday, if you're listening on the day of release of course. Do I need to say that every week? I don't know. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, it's amazing that so many of you tune in every single week. It's brilliant to have you along. 
please do let us know if you're listening because it makes me feel all fuzzy inside knowing that you're listening. Maybe that was a bit cheesy. Anyway, you know what I mean. Great to have you along for episode two of our special series, The Contest and Me. We will return, of course, with the Eurotrip proper in September. There is loads going on, of course, in the world of Eurovision at the moment. By the end of this month, we will probably have the host city for Eurovision 2022. We can all start booking our Airbnbs and our hotels and get excited for the Euro Club and the copious amounts of pizza and pasta that we're going to eat when we're there. But until then, we're bringing you this special series. Thank you for all of your lovely comments about episode one, which was with the BBC broadcaster Paddy O'Connell. Now, we found out all sorts from Paddy, of course. We're going to ask all of our guests the very same questions. I'll run through those with you just as a reminder very, very shortly. But One of the questions is, what is your first memory of the Eurovision Song Contest? Paddy gave us his, which was Brotherhood of Man winning for the United Kingdom in 1976. And I thought I'd throw it out on Twitter to find out what some of your first memories of Eurovision was. And thank you to all of you who have got in touch. Uh, Stuart, who I know is a regular listener. Stuart, thank you so much for listening. Uh, He says, my first memory would be the 2006 contest. I don't think I knew what it was at the time. And then he says his next memory was Scooch, making your mind up, 2007. We all know what happened then. Obviously, Terry announced the wrong winner didn't he? And then Fern Cotner announced the right one. Oh, what a mess. Anyway, Stuart then adds, which I love, he says, I think it was on, this is making your mind up, at the same time as Soap Star Superstars on ITV. The TV kept getting flicked between the two. Soap Star Superstar, what a ridiculous show that was when you had like Fred the Butcher from Coronation Street singing Tina Turner. I mean, I don't think you ever got that combination, but you know what I mean. Uh, Anne got in touch as well. She says, my memory is an older one. Anne-Marie David winning for Luxembourg in 1973, and more recently, Mons winning with Heroes in 2015, which, oh, amazing. I don't need to say you I was in Vienna, because I've told you enough on this podcast. And we've had another one here. Somebody says, three words, dust in the turkey. Is that a good first memory of Eurovision? Don't know. Uh, and Dan... Now, if you are a member of the Eurovision fandom on Twitter, you will know Dan because he posts loads of incredible designs that he often does of stages. Um, so he he posted one recently about what his design would have been for the Junior Eurovision Song Contest this year, which looks stunning. Anyway, Dan tweeted us to say that his first memory was Italy beating Eric Sada for second place in 2011. Basically what he remembers from that year, which was his first. Uh, 2011, what a ridiculous year. We've already been... Been there, haven't we? Especially when I explored that on the interview I did with Eldar back in January, which is a long, long time ago. Mad, isn't it, how quick this year has gone, given everything that's happened? Which does mean, if time continues to travel at this speed, we will soon be at the Eurovision Song Contest of 2022. Junior Eurovision, of course, before that. And again, if you want to get in touch, and we love you getting in touch, we are at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and you can email us, hello at EurotripPodcast.com. This is the Eurotrip. When you aren't listening, you can find us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest. This is the Eurotrip. I keep telling you to get in touch, don't I? Please get in touch and tell me. I'd really like to know this. When do you listen? I've always wanted to ask that question and find out the answer. Ever since we started this podcast last August, 
Where do you normally listen to the podcast? Like, are you walking the dog? Are you on your way to work? Are you in bed? What are you doing? Let me know. I've already reminded you how to get in touch a million times at Twitter, Instagram, or on the email if you really, really want to. And I have to say, of course, before we move on, I've already said we're moving on. I'm getting lost, but you'll know I do this a lot. And without James to keep me on track, it's amazing that we've got where we are already. Uh, Andy, he tweeted his Eurovision memory, his first Eurovision memory. And I have to include Andy's tweet because Andy is one of the podcast's most loyal listeners. So Andy had to feel bad for, for not reading yours out. He says his first memory of Eurovision was 1997. Katrina winning for the United Kingdom. Of course, and Rory as well. Rory gave us Bucks Fizz. He says, Bucks Fizz, skirts, they came off. Uh, I think we already knew that. But Rory, thank you so much for getting in touch. Andy, all of you, thank you. I've already said it, haven't I? It is time to get on with this week's podcast and the big interview today on episode two of The Contest and Me. And I am so excited to bring you this interview with Steve Rosenberg, the BBC's Moscow correspondent and huge Eurovision fan. Now, I didn't do this interview. James did the interview. Just as a reminder for you, James, not very well this week. So please do send him your you get well soon messages. He's on Twitter, so find him on there. He'd love to hear from you and hopefully be back with me again next week. A little behind the scenes for you. It's an absolute nightmare. All the videos you see on Twitter, he normally makes them. I've got to try and work my way around the software this week if he's not back to normal by the end of the week. So wish me luck, everybody. If you're lucky, you might end up with a video on Twitter that looks like I've kind of tried to make a caption on paint or something. So stay tuned for that one. But we ask on The Contest and Me, all of our guests, the very same questions. Now, those questions are their first Eurovision memory, the moment that they first fell in love with the Eurovision Song Contest, their favourite Eurovision year, their favourite Eurovision song, their most memorable Eurovision moment, if they were the UK's head of delegation, how would they change the UK's approach to the contest? And finally, the one change to the contest they would most like to see. Now, I am so pleased that I am not having to answer those questions because they are such difficult questions and I don't know what my answer would be for pretty much all of them. But Steve Rosenberg has incredible answers to, honestly, every single one. We will take you on a journey through the many decades of Eurovision. We will find out Steve Rosenberg's connection to the contest. We'll find out all about the incredible piano covers he does, which you are bound to have seen on social media when it comes to the Eurovision Song Contest. We'll find out more about them. And we'll also find out a little bit more about his life in Russia and his thoughts about Russia in the Eurovision Song Contest, because Steve has been in Russia for many, 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 many decades now and has a story about the Russian national final in the 90s that you are not going to want to miss. And you may remember if you were listening last week, I did kid with James that I think he only got this interview because Steve Rosenberg happened to be in quarantine at the time and didn't have much to do. Honestly, I don't care. I'm just so pleased we can bring this to you because it is fascinating. I really hope you enjoy it. So I'm going to hand you over now to James and Steve for episode two of The Contest and Me. This is the Euro Trip. Steve Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining us here on the Eurotrip, the contest and me. Uh, what a pleasure it is to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to chat. Now, I think the best place to start really is given we are still in 2021. Can we have your thoughts on the 2021 contest that we saw earlier in the year? Well, I think it was excellent. I mean, on many levels, uh, really. It was a great show, um, brilliantly produced uh, by the Netherlands. You know, Rotterdam uh, had waited for this moment for two years and 
they really staged a, a contest to remember, I think. But equally, musically, I think, um, Eurovision 2021 was absolutely brilliant. The standard of songs uh, was really high, I think. There were a dozen or so songs, I'd say, which I really liked and which I still like and still enjoy listening to, uh, including the Swiss entry, the French song, um, the songs from Bulgaria and Norway, and the Irish entry, actually, Maps, uh, even though it didn't make it uh, through the, the semi-final to the final, but I think it was a great entry. Um, but there was, I think, a real buzz uh, around Eurovision 2021. Absolutely. One other entry I must touch on before we start to spring off in all sorts of other directions <laughs> is, of course, the Russian entry in Manesia this year. You had the pleasure of meeting her and, and chatting to her as well. What did you think about her and her entry this year? It was, a, it was a really interesting entry. It wasn't your typical uh, Russian Eurovision entry because it was a mixture of all kinds of things, wasn't it? There was a bit of folk in there. There was a bit of rap in there, a bit of pop in there. So um, not the kind of entry that instantly, I think, makes an impact on the audience. I think it was always going to be difficult for her to get into the top five. But she did well. <laughs> She's an incredibly impressive character. You know, she is very confident. Uh, there was a lot of hatred towards her in Russia uh, before the contest because of her views uh, on feminism, her, her pro-feminist views, her support for the LGBT community. But she's a, a very strong character and she, she put in a great performance, I think. I love the dress. Remember the, remember the incredible dress? Fascinating, wasn't it? emerged from on stage. Incredible staging. Absolutely wonderful. Yes, you're right, though. 2021 was such a strong year all around. I think 2022 has got a lot to live up to, but we'll we'll soon see how that comes around. Um, one thing I will touch on, no doubt, later on is the Russian approach. And given your situation, where you live and your career over the last few years, maybe you'll be able to give us a bit of an insight. But shall we wind the clock back a few years or so? <laughs> you can tell me exactly when that is and find out what your first ever Eurovision memory is. It's a it's a it's an interesting one. I think uh, it might have been 1974 Brighton, you know, the year that ABBA won. But it wasn't ABBA that actually stuck in my mind. It was the giant Womble um, that walked on stage in the interval and presented some flowers to the to the host of the show, Katie Boyle. Now, for anyone who, who doesn't know or doesn't remember what the Wombles are, these little furry animated creatures with pointy noses who lived um, under Wimbledon Common, and they also had a pop band. Anyway, I only recently found out that the, the guy in the giant Womble suit who walked on stage in 1974 in Brighton was none other than the, the, the great singer-songwriter Mike Batt, who actually wrote all the Wombles' music. He was the guy in the costume who gave the flowers to Katie Boyle. Um, and the Wombles that year did the interval act. It was, it was on film. They were singing all their songs. And all right, it wasn't river dance. But I kind of liked it and I remembered it, you know, and possibly that got me hooked. Underground, overground, wumbling free, the wumbles of Wimbledon. Give us an idea about how old you were. You must have been a, were you a young child around about then? <laughs> yeah, I would have been six. 
I would have been about six years old uh, and starting to learn to play the piano. I think I started around around the age of six. I can't remember exactly the moment I, I fell in love with the Eurovision Song Contest, but it must have been around then. And I know it was from an early age. And, you know, it was one of the the few TV programmes that uh, I was allowed to stay up late to watch. Presumably, at least anyway, it wasn't the Wombles that made you fall in love with the contest itself. <laughs> Can you try and pinpoint that moment? I, I suppose it is difficult to try and pinpoint the moment you did fall in love with the contest or or anything really but can you try and sort of pin that down i think i i i was spellbound right the first time i saw it and probably it was just the exotic nature of this this contest and i i remember loving um je sans frontier je sans frontier was the the international version of what used to be a, it's a knockout the, the the game show and it it was kind of the sort of the game show version of, of, of the Eurovision Song Contest around Europe, different teams would compete. And I used to love watching that as well, uh, because the thought that people across Europe were watching that show, and it was the same with the Eurovision Song Contest. You know, the thought that millions of people across Europe at that same moment were sitting down, doing what I was doing, watching this programme, that really blew my mind. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know whether that was 74 or 75, but I was hooked from then on, you know, and um, I don't think I've missed a contest since. Oh, wow. And I imagine you've seen the contest in many different ways since then as well, whether it's watching as a child at home in the UK and now in Russia. And I presume you must have been to a contest or two in your time. I've been to a few, uh, not too many. Uh, I was uh, in Baku in, in 2012 when the, uh, the Buranova Grannies took part. For, for Russia, and they were amazing, the Baranova Granis. Before that contest, uh, I was lucky enough to go to the village where they lived, the village of, of Baranova in Russia. And uh, we filmed them rehearsing and singing, and I helped them actually with their diction. Uh, I helped them to improve their pronunciation with the, with the chorus, which was part, a party for everybody dance, I think. And they were singing dance, dance. And I was saying dance, dance. But they were hilarious. And one of the grannies came up to me with this bottle uh, it was a bottle of water, at least the label said water on the bottle. And she gave me a cheeky wink and said, would you like some, Sonny? And I said, well, uh, OK. Well, of course, it wasn't water, was it? It was homemade vodka in the bottle, yeah. you know. But they, they, were, they were those kind of people, really, really fun, the Baranova Grannies. Um, and, uh, you know, I, yeah, I've been lucky to go to some Eurovisions, but one of the most... Um, uh, unusual Eurovision experiences I ever had was in 1996. I was already working in Moscow. I'd actually set up a teletext company of all things, Russia's first teletext service like CFAX, uh, but a, a Russian version. And I'd set up shop at Russian television. And that day I was being given um, a tour of Russian state television of the studios. And I wandered into one studio where they happened to be rehearsing for that night's Russian Song for Europe competition. I thought, right, this is right up my street. I'll just sit here a little bit and have a look. Anyway, I got chatting with the director of the program and said that uh, you know, I'm a big Eurovision fan. And he said, well, why don't you come on the program tonight as presenter's friend? So that <laughs> night I found myself uh, totally unexpectedly as the presenter's friend uh, live on Russian state television for, for Russia's Song for Europe competition, wearing a really 
awful jacket. This had, this was subsequently leaked to YouTube. So there is uh, a very embarrassing, cringing footage of me uh, in, in 1996. Uh, now you say that, Steve, because you, when we were chatting via email, setting this up, you mentioned this brief story and I thought, I must have a look and see if it does. Oh, you didn't find it, did you? I did find it. Yes, I found it. (laughs) And there you were on the screen presenting this song for Europe in Russia and you don't look flustered whatsoever. It's like you were born naturals for that. Сотрудник компании CBS, подданный Британии, Стивен Розенберг. Добрый вечер. Стивен, как в Англии относится к конкурсу песни Евровидения? В Англии очень любят этот конкурс, хотя прошло 40 лет, и, может быть, не все песни на этом конкурсе хорошие. Well, it's the love of Eurovision that got me through it, I think, even in that awful jacket. But it, it was a wonderful experience. The sad thing was that the, the singer that won uh, Russia's Song for Europe that year didn't have a very good song. And in 1996, uh, the way the EBU chose the finalists, they had a big committee meeting, I think, to actually look at all the entries, go through the entries. Uh, there were no big semi-final concerts, competitions. The EBU chose, and they didn't choose the, the Russian song to go to go through to the final, so it didn't actually make it. I remember the name of the song, it was Ya Ete Ya. It, it wasn't a great Eurovision song, let's put it like that. The big question is, can you play that one on the piano? <laughs> I can play a few bars of it, yeah, but it, it, it's not a great melody. But I can, yes, I can play a few bars of it. But the, the, the show was presented by Musha Katz, I remember that. And Musha Katz was the first ever uh, singer for Russia in the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, who put in a, a stellar performance in Russia's first year, the year before. Uh, and she was the presenter, so uh, it was great fun. I bumped into her, bizarrely, a couple of years ago at a wedding uh, in, in in Moscow, we reminisced about that uh, that wonderful day when we were live on Russian television. How remarkable! What a story! I think only you of all people could come up with a story such like that. <laughs> remarkable. Can we touch on what the the approach is, or what the more likely the reaction is to Eurovision in Russia? Because on the outside, you look at Russia and you look at the Eurovision Song Contest and think these two are pulls apart from one another. So what is the general reaction like when Eurovision comes around every May? It's a really good question. Russia, Russians like to win. Russia likes to win. Whether we're talking uh, sport, you know, the Olympic Games, football, or the Eurovision Song Contest. If they're in a competition, they want to come first. And they get very angry And if they don't win. So very often, you know, if Russia doesn't win the Eurovision Song Contest, in the post contest uh, discussion program on Russian television. They'll be claiming it's politics. They'll be claiming the world doesn't like Russia. It, you know, it's not fair. You know, in, in the UK, we're used to coming near the bottom of the leaderboard. You know, we kind of don't like it, but we grin and bear it. We love Eurovision and we get on and look forward to the next year. Russia takes it very seriously. But I remember, you know, when back in 96, during that Song for Europe uh, competition, in the studio, there was a a sign. It was like the European Union sign, stars. And I remember thinking then, goodness me, you know, Russia is on the path towards, you know, friendship with Europe, to becoming part of a united Europe, you know. And there there really was a sense that that was happening. Things are very different today. Russia has taken a very different path, going away from Europe, uh, you know, in confrontation with Europe and the West. Um, And yet... Whenever the Eurovision Song Contest comes round, 
Russia wants to enter and it wants to do well. And it puts a lot of money and it puts a lot of effort into finding a good singer and finding a good song and staging it well. And I think actually a lot of countries could learn a lot from Russia, certainly in terms of how to stage uh, a number. Does uh, Vladimir Putin have uh, <laughs> much interest in the contest, do you know? Funnily, in the, the, the few occasions I've had to, to ask a question of Vladimir Putin at press conference, I haven't asked him <laughs> about the Eurovision Song Contest. More political, although I did get to ask his, his press secretary once whether uh, he was interested in, in Eurovision. And uh, the, the reply came back that um, Vladimir Putin is a big ABBA fan, apparently, big ABBA fan. So uh, that's, that's quite interesting. But, uh, you know, whether he uh, knows about uh, Love Shine a Light or Johnny Logan, I, I don't know. It's not <laughs> yeah. Maybe one day, maybe one day we'll find out the answer. Absolutely. Shall we focus on yourself again? Because the next question on the list um, is your favourite Eurovision year. And maybe that's because of the songs or maybe it's because of where it was in the world. Do you have a favourite? Is it, is it easy? Is it difficult to choose a favourite year? It's really difficult. I think if I was to choose a year because of the music, right, it would be 1975. If I was stranded on a desert island but could choose one Eurovision to watch and to listen to, it would be the 1975 contest because there were so many classy songs in 1975, I think. You know, really great songs. Leave aside for, for a moment the Dutch winner, like Ding a Dong, which became a, a Eurovision classic. But the UK song that came second, that was good. Let me be the one. Won't you show me you care? Oh, come on, let me be the one who takes you by the hand. Takes you by the hand. Let me be the one who always oh, The Italian entry, um, Era, that came third. That was excellent. French song, Et Bonjour à toi l'artiste. Uh, that came forth was a great song. And all the way down, uh, the Spanish entry, I love the Spanish entry that year, uh, Tu Volvera, and that came 10th, but that was a brilliant song. And Joy Fleming, who sang for Germany that year, had a real Eurovision banger. The way you recounted these songs and uh, the titles and in, in all these different foreign languages, is surely that's not knowledge from the time. You must do your research and go back and watch previous contests and read about them. Yeah, if that if that had been knowledge from the time, that would be very worrying. <laughs> I think I would give you permission, James, to call call me a doctor. No, I mean, I subsequently uh, going through listening back to some of these contests, um, picked up these songs, and uh, and and nineteen seventy five really has stayed in my mind. I think I watched the contest through last year, and uh, some of the songs I actually remembered. They, they, were, they were there in, in my mind. Some of them I didn't know, but I, I absolutely fell in love with. So, uh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I don't consider myself a, a Eurovision super fan, bizarrely. I just love the songs. I, I, I don't know. There's something about a Eurovision song that, that, that really strikes a chord with me. Uh, sorry for the pun. But, um, and, uh, you know, some people collect stamps, don't they? Or, or coins or... Uh, book matches but uh, I kind of collect Eurovision songs and you have this extraordinary talent where you can play goodness knows how many of these songs on the piano given there's been about 1500 songs performed on the stage how many of those can you actually play if I could play 1500 Eurovision songs that would be extremely worrying <laughs> but no I can play around 300 wow. I can play all the winners uh, every winning song since 56 
uh, and a couple of hundred more, maybe. Um, uh, yes, it sounds strange, doesn't it? But uh, but I, I really enjoy it. And, um, you know, I don't set out to, um, you know, learn every Eurovision song. But if, if I like the sound of it, then I'll sit down at the piano and, and try to kind of... Um, copy it and if, if I can if I listen to it a few times if, the, if it's a nice melody then I can normally pick it up quite quickly And then we often see now, don't we, over the last few years at least, every May, it's a few weeks before the contest, you sit down at the piano and take requests from people all over the world. I mean, that, that, that's a big highlight for, for some fans across the world, isn't it? I, it's, it's certainly a highlight for me. I really enjoy it. It's the one, you know, day of the year where I kind of transform from, the, from a Moscow correspondent into this sort of Eurovision uh, cocktail pianist. And I, I, I love it. And it's, it's fun to see the requests come in. And some of them are kind of odd requests, but quite challenging. Uh, and I can't play them all, but uh, I really enjoy doing it. And uh, it seems to go down well with the audience. And, and I'm really pleased about that. And you've done this in some remarkable places as well. I'm trying to recount some of the years. And <laughs> you can tell me the venues, but I just remember seeing them in, in my mind, these grand venues, whether it's embassies or... You tell me, where, <laughs> where, where have you done this? Well, the first one we did about six years ago um, was very basic. I was just at home and my son, Michael, was filming me on the, on the, the smartphone live. Uh, so it was all a bit rough and ready. But that was the first one. And then we realised that it had gone, gone down quite well. So in subsequent years, yeah, we branched out. We've been in embassies. We were at the Dutch embassy uh, in Moscow this year uh, and last year. We've been at the Portuguese embassy one year we were in the Moscow House of Music, which is a big concert hall um, in, in Moscow. weren't we, I wasn't in the actual concert hall bit. I was in the uh, in the um, in the hall next to the. I was in. I was next to the cloakroom where people leave their coats. But uh, even so, there was a nice piano there. Uh, and when I was in Kiev for the Eurovision Song Contest, we we did one from Kiev. My dream, of course, is to actually do one from the Eurovision stage one year to actually be on the Eurovision stage doing our live request show, you know, dream on, of course. But... Surely we can make that happen at some point, maybe for the 10th anniversary of you doing the piano requests, maybe one year, somebody's going to say, come on, Steve, we'll let you do it. Come on. on the oh, stage. that would be, that would be nice. That maybe the, the Eurovision fairy will come down and wave their magic wand and uh, <laughs> it'll all happen. <laughs> let's, let's keep our fingers crossed for that. I think it also moves us nicely onto, I admit another very difficult question, which is, your favourite Eurovision song, and I appreciate this may change from day to day, but should we have a go at it anyway? <laughs> this is a re this is a question I've been dreading, James, <laughs> because I have so many favourites. But if I had to whittle them down and choose, can I can I have two? <laughs> you can have, you can have as many as you want, really. You can make the rules. All right. Well, uh, hold me now, Johnny Logan for Ireland in 1987, and the French joint winner in 1969, um, Un Jour, Un Enfant, which was sung by the late, great Frida Baccara, who had such a superb voice, uh, and it was such a haunting melody. And 1969, of course, that very odd year when, uh, when four countries 
tied for first place. If I had to choose two two greats, uh, those would be those would be my two. I think. Can I move on to your most memorable Eurovision moment? Again, this is another tough one, given how many <laughs> memories you must have. But can you think of something that just sticks in your mind? Whether I mean, some of the stories you've told us so far, hosting a national selection in, in Russia is quite a memorable <laughs> moment. But are there any more that just sort of stick out for you, Steve? Yeah, there are lots. I mean, um, I think the most memorable on-screen moment from a Eurovision final was uh, from the 1985 Eurovision in, in Gothenburg, I think it was, mm. uh, in Sweden, which was presented by a brilliant host, multi-talented uh, and supremely cool, Lille Lindfors, I think her name was. Pretty and she opened the whole thing with, a, with a, an amazing song, a jazz number, uh, and sang her heart out. You know, she was the best singer there all night. Ladies and gentlemen, mesdames et messieurs, my dames and welcome to a very special evening coming to you from Gothenburg, Sweden. And this is really a special festival because, in fact, it is the 30th, oh, that's a nice word for a Swede to say, 30th <laughs> Eurovision Song Contest. And then I remember just before the voting began, she, she came back onto stage and she faked a, a wardrobe malfunction. Like she made it look as if her dress had, had got stuck or caught on a nail and had been half torn off. And everyone, of course, in the hall, I'm sh- and I'm sure watching at home, were totally shocked. I'm sure the EBU was quite um, shocked as well. But of course, seconds later, she sort of magically turned this, or turned what was left of her clothes into this new frock with a flick of a few fingers. It was brilliant. It was absolutely comical. She's one of the best hosts in the history of, of the Eurovision Song Contest, no doubt for me. So that stayed in my mind. But I've met, you know, through the years, lots of interesting people connected to the Eurovision Song Contest. I remember when the contest was in Tallinn uh, back in 2002, I think. Two, that's right. So I, I was doing a preview piece for the BBC and I met this incredible pensioner called Carl, Carl Pilgas. And he took me into his flat and showed me, unlocked a cupboard and showed me all these score sheets uh, from Eurovision Song Contest parties of the past. And what Carl had done, because Estonia was once part of the Soviet Union, part of the, the communist empire. And he used to hold, have these clandestine Eurovision Song Contest parties. He built himself a satellite dish out of electronics that he gathered with the purpose of watching the Eurovision Song Contest. Because for him, for this Estonian, Eurovision was a sign of freedom. It was a breath of fresh air. And he said that if the authorities had found out that he was doing this, he could have lost his job. So secretly, every year, he gathered his friends round at his apartment and they had this, this secret Eurovision Song Contest party and kept score. And he kept all these scorecards. And that really um, was amazing. And, and it showed to me that actually, you know, People in the West who kind of shrug their shoulders and make jokes about Eurovision. Well, for many people in the East, Eurovision represented, you know, freedom. It represented a different life you know, when the Iron Curtain was still up. And I know that um, uh, in communist times, you know, the, the, the socialist bloc came up with its own version of Eurovision, Intervision. That was their competitor. They thought that that was going to be the superior contest. Well, it, it hardly lasted, only lasted a few years. 
uh, and collapsed just like communism collapsed. Um, and so the Iron Curtain disappeared and everyone came together. But Karl's story, or communist Karl, as we called him, uh, really brought home to me the power of Eurovision and why this contest is so important and how it, it does bring people together. And Carl's story, like you mentioned just there, you know, that's, that's what, 20 years ago now, just shows how far the contest has come in just those 20 years. But you must have seen it just develop from, I was going to say, a small scale event, not in the slightest, but compared to where it is now, again, pulls apart. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the kind of concert halls where the, or studios, where the Eurovision took place back in the 70s, with the massive stadiums where Eurovision takes place now, I mean, it's chalk and cheese, isn't it? I mean, it really has expanded. And I think it's a great thing that Eurovision has, has changed, has kept changing over the years. The voting rules have changed. The style has changed. The size has changed. The songs have changed as well. Um, and I think that, that that's a good thing. That's, it's a positive thing. And I'm sure Eurovision will continue to change and keep up um, with with the times. Now, one thing that has also changed over the years uh, is the UK's success or lack thereof in most recent years. I, I assume you remember the uh, the heady days when we would either come first or second, and that was about yeah. it, really. But we cast our minds back to the last two decades or so, and it hasn't been so rosy. So, if you were in charge, if you were the UK's head of delegation, is a question we're asking everybody else who comes on the podcast. What would you do to try and get the UK back to where many people would say it belongs? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? I mean, first of all, I'd say, like, let's look at the good news, because Eurovision is still hugely popular in the United Kingdom. I think more than 7 million people watched it on the BBC this year. And on radio and on television and online, there were uh, lots of uh, Eurovision-related Program. So the BBC, in that sense, takes it very seriously and, and treats Eurovision as a big deal. All we need to do now uh, is come up with a <laughs> great song, a great entry. And I think it's no good crying, uh, as many people do, that no one loves us because of Brexit. You know, we've got no friends. No one will ever vote for us ever again. They will. I'm certain of it. If the song is right. I mean, you know, look at Israel. Israel is not a country well, a country that you might think doesn't have too many neighbours rushing to vote for it. And yet they still won, didn't they, in 2018? Look at France. France hasn't won the contest since uh, 1977. And yet they came so close this year. So I think we can win. I think what we should do is look back at the 2021 contest and learn a lot from the countries that did so well. You need something special. You need to enter with something special. You need something that will set you apart, something that will, will blow the competition away. You need the wow factor. I think that if you look at the kind of entries that other countries are coming up with in their own languages, you know, the French entry from this year, the Swiss entry, the Italian entry, you know, these are, are great songs and they're all different. They stand out. We need a standout entry and a standout performer. And I think then we, we, we can think about victory again. And surely, if it does come back to the UK, that would be a perfect opportunity for the BBC to say, come on then, Steve, you can play the piano on the stage this year. <laughs> I tell you, I'd be on that stage. Wild horses couldn't drag me off it. <laughs> I'd chain myself to the, <laughs> to the piano. You talked about so many foreign languages as well. 
Should we give it a go in Welsh? You know, we forget Welsh as a British language. Is that an idea? You know what? I was thinking the same thing. You know, why not? You know, think out of the box. The last question on my list, no doubt we might spring off in a couple of other directions afterwards. But the last question is, what one change would you like to see at the contest in the future? We've seen, or at least you've definitely seen many changes about the voting and the uh, the abolition of the orchestra over the years. Is there anything up your sleeve that you're thinking, I tell you what, this could uh, this could spring the, the contest into a different direction entirely? I'm not sure. I think the contest is doing pretty well, actually. The voting is really exciting. There have been so many changes to the voting, uh, to the rules, but I think they've got it pretty good now. This 50-50 split, the the jury and the, the tally vote, uh, and dividing up the announcing the results, it really makes for an exciting contest. You mentioned the abolition of the orchestra. I think that's a shame. And I know that times change and things move on and it's very expensive. But, you know, you can't beat live music. And if there was one thing I could do, I'd bring the orchestra back. If we look ahead as well, what will 2022 look like for you? Will you be hoping to get out there to Italy and watch it if possible? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to, James. Yeah. Uh, You know, I haven't been to too many Eurovisions, but it's always been an exciting experience, Uh, a special experience, uh, very exciting. And yeah, I'd love to I'd love to be there and to to maybe host our uh, piano request show from, from Italy next year. We'll see. I mean, you know, the thing about covering Russia is you never know what's going to happen here. Russia is full of surprises and often dramatic surprises. So Russia kind of keeps us busy uh, quite a lot of the time. Uh, which is why it's nice to have a little break around May uh, to do the uh, the piano thing with Eurovision. I know we talked a little bit about Russia earlier on. Can we bring it back to Russia for a moment or two? And just to find out what it would mean for Russia to win the contest again, because we look at their past record and the, again, like Italy, have been there or thereabouts on a handful of occasions. What would it mean for them to actually get another win under their belt? I think Russia would love to win. As I say, you know, the Russians love to win. They love to be first. They love to build the biggest, the biggest buildings, the highest buildings. Uh, they love to get all the gold medals. And so uh, they would dearly love to win the Eurovision Song Contest. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a programme watched by nearly 200 million people around the world. And it's a great stage. And uh, I think, you know, Russia would, would, would love to do well again. And, you know, they've come close in recent years, they've come very close. Um, um, Sergei Lazarev did so well for them uh, a few years back. And if Little Big had had their chance, that, uh, you know, on the stage in the spotlight, you know, perhaps uh, they would have won. So, um, you know, Russia usually puts in a very strong entry. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, they grab first place again in the nearest future. If you don't go to Italy next year, what will a Steve Rosenberg Eurovision party look like next May? Well, a, a, a Steve Rosenberg Eurovision party always features the traditional Eurovision Song Contest fruit salad. So we <laughs> gather together as a family in front of the television and I make this giant fruit salad with 25 or 26 different fruits to rep, you know, represent the 25 or 26 countries taking part. It, sometimes it's quite difficult to get 26 different fruits um, and sometimes I have to resort to getting a tin of pe- a tin of tin pears or something like that to make up the numbers but uh, it, 
it's become a weird tradition. Yeah. So we, we do that and friends come over and we'll watch it happily in front of the telly. Not a question I thought I'd ask you, but what's your favourite European fruit? <laughs> My favourite European fruit. Oh, you've put me on the spot with that one. <laughs> mm, I think it would have to be an English apple, a Cox's orange pippin. Well, there you go. Douze poire to the Cox's orange pippin, I think. <laughs> Oh, Steve, thank you so much for joining us and having this wonderful chat. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you so much for joining us. Me too. Best wishes to you. Wasn't wrong, was I? Steve Rosenberg. What a guest. Amazing to have him on the podcast. Thank you to James as well for asking the questions. I think you'll agree that they both covered some fascinating ground there, including highlights for me. The idea of the UK maybe sending an entry in Welsh. Why not? Steve Rosenberg's ridiculous 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 story about co-hosting Russia's Song for Europe in 1996 he said you can find it on YouTube you heard a clip of it on the podcast honestly it's in Russian obviously it's an hour and a half long but that video exists on YouTube so if you find yourself at a loose end one day go and check it out if for nothing else the fashion is remarkable and also one of my favorites was that story about Steve and the Russian grannies of course they gave Steve some vodka of course they did uh, you can let us know what you thought. What was your favourite part of that interview? Hello at EuroTripPodcast.com on the email, at EuroTripPodcast on Twitter and Instagram. And please, this is a plea from me as well. Honestly, I'm being very beggy this week. Please leave us a review if you haven't already. Uh, you can do it on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening. Please, if you think we're worth five stars, even four stars three stars whatever anyway if you think we're worth it please leave us a review because it's super helpful to help more people find us and honestly it just makes it worthwhile so if you're listening if you've been listening for a while if you're a new listener if you haven't left us a review at any point yet please do leave us a review and it means so much so that would be great if you've got any comments you want to leave on there as well that would be absolutely fantastic because we want to continue improving and we want to continue bringing you closer to the European Song Contest, which is what we will continue to do for the remainder of this series because there are still four episodes left of the contest in me and we will be back with another one next week. It is one that I have done with a friend of the Eurotrip podcast, I think it's safe to say, and especially anyone who is a fan of Melody Festivalen you are going to want to have a listen to next week's podcast. I will be back next week. I hope James will be back next week too. Let's all join together and wish him well. Get well soon, James. We hope to have you back on the podcast very soon. But from me, it's time to say goodbye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.